Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week we're discussing the potential to generate medical isotopes in nuclear power stations. Discussing that with me is Dr. Robert Hoyle, Head of Science at the Welsh Government Office for Science. Dr. Hoyle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Gavin. It's a great pleasure to be here and thank you for the opportunity to talk to you about medical radioisotopes. So let's just start off with a couple of definitions. What, what do we mean by a medical isotope? What is it and, and what are they used for? I think what we should do is to start off with uh, defining what an isotope is. So an isotope is an element, a particular element, in which there are different or there can be different numbers of neutrons in the uh, nucleus of the atom. All elements have a given number of protons. So for instance, hydrogen, the simplest element, has one proton in the nucleus. Um, but of course, uh, the isotopes mean that it, the, the hydrogen atom uh, might have zero, one or two neutrons in the nucleus. Uh, it is these differences in the number of neutrons which uh, define the, the types of isotopes. And of course, as you change the number of neutrons within the nucleus and change the ratio of protons to neutrons, then for certain elements and certain isotopes, the nucleus becomes unstable and gives off or can give off radiation. And, and what happens is part of the, the nucleus breaks away and emits some kind of radiation. And it is this radiation that is the very useful component of a medical radioisotope. Now, a medical radioisotope are isotopes that have been selected specifically for undertaking particular things uh, within a medicine. So for example, gamma emitters, uh, isotopes that uh, when they decay give off gamma rays, uh, can be used for imaging. This is particularly uh, interest of interest when it comes to imaging diseases, especially cancers. And then other types of isotopes, when they decay, cause damage. The radiation, the, the radioactive particles or the particles that come off cause damage. And it is this damage which is the useful property. And the whole point of therapeutic radioisotopes is that the, the radioisotope damages the, the, the target uh, disease. So, for example, if you are looking to target a cancer, say uh, prostate cancer, then you might use a, a radioactive element or uh, isotope, which when it decays will, will damage the cancer cells. So you target the uh, medical radioisotope so that it is carried around the bloodstream and targets the particular area of interest, uh, in this case, uh, prostate cancer. And then you might expect this thing to decay and damage the cancer cells and ultimately to destroy the cancer cells. And that's the, the therapeutic use of medical radioisotopes. So you've got two basic types, one for diagnostics, one for radiotherapeutics. So now we've got that clear, obviously these are very useful products. What, what's the current situation with the global supply of medical isotopes? The current situation is based on a group of what are known as research reactors, uh, many of which were built a long time ago, back in the 1950s and 1960s and early 70s, uh, which were built to, to support 
other things such as the nuclear power industry, power generation industry, uh, where all sorts of different materials needed to be tested, different fuels, different materials properties needed to be tested. Uh, and so these reactors were built to, uh, largely built to, to support a different use. But over the years, it has been found that they are extremely useful for producing a range of different isotopes and, and medical uh, isotopes in particular, but also all sorts of different other isotopes that are used in many, many different applications in industry. So the use of medical radioisotopes has grown up over a number of years on the back of other industries that use uh, nuclear reactors, usually small nuclear test reactors or research reactors. But when, nevertheless, there'd be piggybacked, if I can use that phrase, on the back of other uses of reactors and other purposes of reactors. So there's probably in the world at the moment between six and eight supply reactors, reactors that produce medical radioisotopes uh, as a component of, of what they do. They do lots of other things as well, but as a component of what they do, they supply medical radioisotopes. And this is something that has become uh, more important uh, as, as years have gone by because of the development of radio medicines uh, and radio diagnostics. So, so the situation is that the whole world supply of medical radioisotopes is dependent on a relatively small number of producing reactors. And is that situation likely to change in the future? Well, the, the difficulty here is that, yes, it's very likely to change. And, and as I said earlier, a, a lot of the reactors were built in the 1950s and 1960s, and they are coming to the end of their useful lives. In other words, the worn out, uh, to put it bluntly, and they're becoming more and more costly and more and more difficult uh, to keep running uh, and keeping the, the regulator, nuclear regulators happy and the safety uh, cases maintained, it, they're becoming more and more difficult. And so what is happening is uh, over time, these reactors have been closing. And in days gone by, there were far more reactors uh, available than there are now. And it's a, a diminishing uh, number. And over the next probably the next 10 years, something like 60% of the current world supply uh, of medical radioisotopes will disappear as reactors that produce these isotopes close. Uh, in Europe, there's probably three or four that are going to close over the next 10 years. And elsewhere in the world, there aren't that many. There's one in Australia, there's one in South Africa, there's one in uh, South America, there's one in the United States, uh, and there's probably three, four, maybe in Europe, but no reactors in Britain, in the UK, uh, that, are, that are for civil purposes that make, make uh, radioisotopes. Of course, there are nuclear power generation reactors, uh, but you don't make medical radioisotopes in, in nuclear power uh, generator uh, uh, reactors. So, so there are, are quite different. What we should do is recognize that the difference between research reactors that can be used for making radioisotopes, medical radioisotopes, uh, and those that are used for generating power, which are quite different beasts altogether. So why is a nuclear reactor the best place to make medical isotopes? Well, there are other technologies that can be used for making isotopes of specific kinds. 
and usually in very, very small amounts and usually very, very short-lived isotopes. So cyclotrons, for example, can be used for uh, uh, making isotopes. And these are accelerator-based technologies, but they tend to make only very small quantities of light short-lived isotopes. Now, uh, fluorine-18, for example, is used in PET scanners, positron emission tomography scanners. And the short life or half-life of fluorine-18 means that you need to have your generator, your isotope generator, very, very close to your, your, your place of diagnostic testing. So in other words, in, in the center or the treatment place where you where you actually have your diagnostic equipment your scanners uh, you need to generate very very close uh, proximity to to that your fluorine 18 because of the short half-life but these short half-life materials uh, are, are not good if you have to transport them over large distances because they literally disappear as time goes by the most commonly used radioisotope for diagnostic purposes is technetium-99 that is a decay product of molybdenum-99 and the vast majority, something like 85% of of all diagnostic procedures uh, use this particular combination of of, uh, radiodiagnostic or or radioisotope. So uh, although there are other technologies available, uh, the most commonly used ones are, uh, and the most useful ones, are from reactors, the the traditional type research reactor. So you've outlined the fact that the old reactors are closing, that Britain doesn't have a reactor that produces these types of materials. How much would a medical radioisotope supply facility cost and how long would it take to build and commission and get going? We've, as, as the Welsh government, we, we've undertaken a, a piece of work where we've actually looked into, into this uh, as an option study. And there are many uh, different reactor technologies out there. But one of the best ones is based on an Australian facility known as, uh, run by ANSTO, uh, Australian Nuclear Science Technology Organisation, and an open pool reactor that they call OPAL, open pool light water reactor, Australian light water reactor. And this is a very, very flexible type of reactor. This, if we were to to build something very, very similar within the UK, might cost of the order of 400 million pounds, but it would be very much a sort of carbon copy of the Opal Ansto reactor, uh, of which it is mature, it, it works very well, it's very flexible, it is very well understood and characterized, and there's a great deal of experience and knowledge in, in running this. So to, to, to replicate something like that in the UK might cost 400 million pounds or of, of that order, and that would include the, the post-processing uh, that's required. And I, I can talk about post-processing if, if, if you like. How long would it take? Assuming we got the the, the regulator to agree this uh, and got a, a you know passed through the licensing and regulations, then it might take um, six seven years to build something of that order. So so within between now and 2030, when the the projected shortage of medical radioisotopes really starts to become acute because of closure of reactors, we could in in theory have a replacement reactor. Now, someone somewhere needs to build 
isotope production facilities of one technology or another. And, and what we've been looking at is the, the potential for doing something in the UK, in Wales, uh, along, uh, along the lines of a, a sort of car carbon copy of the ANSTO uh, reactor in Australia. And given 400 million pound price tag, how does the UK government, the Welsh government ensure value for money for such a project? What I think we, we need to understand about this is that very few reactors actually make any money. In fact, there's only one reactor in the world that actually research reactor that makes money, and that's the ANSTO reactor. But that doesn't cover its investment costs. It only covers its running costs. So, you know, the, the cost of employing people and equipment and so on and running the facility. So when it comes to value for money, we've got to look at a wider in a wider perspective. Medical radioisotopes are, are used extensively, as, as we've discussed, uh, for, for medical diagnostics and, and radio medicines. And there is huge potential for a great deal more of targeted bespoke radio medicines, if only we had a, a, a regular supply. So we've got to look at value for money in terms of treatments and patients, uh, life exp increasing life expectancies, reducing the, the incidence of deaths from cancer, but by improved treatments. So, so the way we look at it and the, the way we are uh, approaching this is it's about saving lives. And the value for money comes from saving lives by having better treatments, better diagnostics, uh, and so on. Now, the UK it doesn't fare particularly well when it comes to life expectancies of many common cancers uh, compared to our European colleagues. And this partly is because of not diagnosing cancers early enough and by having better facilities, better treatments, better diagnostic abilities, uh, by having secure uh, radio diagnostics uh, and um, isotopes facilities and production facilities, that then we can improve the survivability of many, many cancers. And that's where the value for money comes. Okay. Obviously, the UK government is looking at next generation nuclear as part of its long-term energy strategy. How easy is it to incorporate plans to co-generate medical isotopes into plans for designing and building new uh, small modular reactors, for example? Well, what we should bear in mind is that a, a radio, medical radioisotopes reactor is not a power generation reactor. Of course, it generates uh, some heat uh, as part of the nuclear reactions that go on in the, in the core of the reactor, but there's no way that you can use uh, this for generating electricity on any large scale. Uh, and uh, you, you wouldn't want to, and there's very, very good technical reasons why you can't generate much electricity from, from this. In, in fact, the cost would just make it prohibitive. So we, we've got to look at it from the point of view, what, how else does it support? How else does a research reactor support a burgeoning or a, a renaissance in the, in the nuclear power industry? And there's all sorts of ways in, in which a research reactor can be used. Uh, all sorts of things around the development of new fuels, the development of new materials for nuclear reactors, the, looking, the, the, the way the performance of the, uh, the materials themselves 
uh, when exposed to high levels of radiation in extreme environments. All these things can be, can be explored uh, and researched with a, a research reactor. And not just, not just that, you can use a research reactor for looking at space applications. Of course, out in space, uh, you get all sorts of different types of exotic radiation, which can cause damage to, to sp space equipment and electronics in spacecraft uh, and satellites and so on. So you can do all sorts of other uh, radiation type research with a, with a, a research reactor. So it's got, it's got wide, wide uh, applications, not, not just for supporting nuclear power generation, but clearly there is a role for supporting nuclear power generation. So you talked about a potential global shortage because different things are uh, shutting down over the coming years. What are other countries doing? Uh, are we detecting other people looking to build these things? Is there best practice? Obviously for design, there's potentially some best practice, but uh, are other countries also going along the lines you've described? Other countries are looking at the replacement of their existing reactors. So uh, in particular, the Netherlands and Belgium are looking to replace their big reactors, uh, research reactors. But what is happening is that if, if you try and do too much with a reactor, in other words, do all sorts of exotic uh, research as well as produce medical radioisotopes, then the costs spiral. Uh, and, if, and indeed what is happening is that the people who are looking at, uh, abroad to, and trying to make the business case are, are struggling to make the business case. And, and partly that is because they're trying to get the reactor to do too many things. Uh, and reactors, different types of design of reactor are good at doing different uh, types of research. And once you start to try and do all uh, one reactor that will fit all demands of research, then it just becomes prohibitively expensive. Uh, and that's what the Europeans are, uh, are finding, not just the Europeans, but many other countries are finding as well, that it's just becoming too expensive. So what we've been doing uh, is looking at restricting the number of different research applications that, you might, that we might look at, so as to limit the, or to prevent the spiraling of costs so it's a trade-off between how much you prepare to spend and, and how wide and encompassing the research that you can do with it. And thereafter, it's a, it's a balancing act. And if we were to build one of these reactors, would that generate enough capacity for the UK's needs for medical isotopes going forward in the future? Or do we need several of them? Several of the other alternative technologies don't produce the same volume of medical radioisotopes or haven't been demonstrated to produce as, as a conventional uh, small research reactor. If we look at the ANSTO reactor in Australia, then that, that potentially could supply something like 20 to 25% of the world's supply just from one reactor. Although that is the, the, the existing world demand uh, for medical radioisotopes. But the, the, the world demand for medical radioisotopes is, is projected to increase significantly over the, the, the coming two decades. Uh, and especially if some of the more exotic uh, and exciting uh, uh, actinium or lutetium type isotope treatments, then there could be a massive increase in demand 
uh, for medical radioisotopes, in which case there could be scope for several reactors across the, the world, not just within the UK, although it's, it's unlikely that we would need more than one in the UK of this type of reactor. But many other parts of the world, there's scope for more reactors if some of these new treatments come online. And one of the limiting factors for these new treatments is the lack of radioisotope supply. I want to finish with a question which I guess comes a lot. Nuclear power still suffers from press and public concern. What can be done to change the perceptions of that so that we can proceed with sort of new buildings as you're proposing? Well, there's there's two things to, to, to consider there. We, we are concerned uh, about the uh, climate change and the need to decarbonize. And one, one of the prospects for addressing low carbon energy sources is nuclear power. And uh, the Royal Society recently published a report where they looked at co-generation of, of things like hydrogen uh, and synthetic fuels on the back of nuclear power. But, but for all of these um, new energy vectors, you need to have a, an original energy source. Now, some of that energy will come from renewables, of course it will, but other sources and very good sources and reliable, consistent sources, in other words, they're not intermittent, would be a, a nuclear power station. So, so that's one thing, is making the argument on the basis of, uh, of climate change and protecting the planet and the need to decarbonize. So that's, that's one aspect. The other aspect that we've, we're more interested in is the medical side. Medical radioisotopes have been used uh, for, for a long time for treatments, but it's not, I don't think it's well known amongst the public that these are actually radioactive materials. And so we are promoting and, uh, and looking at this from the perspective of the messaging around the medical aspects of this. And you'd be surprised actually at just how many people out in the general public have actually had medical diagnostics or medical radioisotope treatments, perhaps without realizing the significance that they all come from nuclear reactors. So, so I think there's, there's some messaging that we're, we're considering uh, about building the case and the public support around the medical aspects, which over time can be translated into the, the benefits of nuclear for other things, such as addressing climate change. Really interesting. I could talk to you all day about this, but unfortunately we've run out of time. Dr. Robert Hoyle, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. My pleasure. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Dr. Robert Hoyle, Head of Science in the Welsh Government Office for Science. The topic of nuclear cogeneration, mentioned by Dr. Hoyle, is the subject of a free online event being organised by the Foundation on the 9th of December. Details of that event and how to reserve a ticket, plus information on all our other events, our blogs and all issues of this podcast can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Next week, I'll be discussing co-generation of hydrogen at nuclear reactors with Julia Pike, Director of Sizewell C Financing and Economic Regulation.